0: This podcast is sponsored by our partner, QXMD. QXMD builds mobile solutions that drive evidence-based medicine and clinical practice. Check out READ for easy access to research personalized for you and CALCULATE for over 500 easy-to-use decision support tools. Try them today at qxmd.com apps. Again, that is qxmd.com. Dot com slash apps. Welcome to the Critical Care Obstetrics podcast series on cardiac disease and pregnancy. Today, we're going to talk about a basic plan of care during labor, birth, and postpartum for women with cardiac disease. My name is Julie Arafay, and I'm here with my partners, Stephanie Martin and Suzanne Baird. Is there a general guideline of care for women with cardiac disease during labor, birth, and postpartum? The good news is yes, there is a general plan of care for women with cardiac disease. And when you have that general plan of care, simulation is going to be a key part of implementing it and individualizing care for women that have complex cardiac disease. We're going to be covering that in another podcast. The baseline risk assessment needs to be done on all women, and we have also covered that in a different podcast. The risk assessment, the findings that we get from this risk assessment will answer so many of the questions that we're going to talk about today, and it's going to be the actual cornerstone for how care is going to be planned for this woman. It's also going to give you the opportunity to determine if this woman really fits within your scope of care of your hospital. And if she doesn't, where does she need to be transported to or where does her care need to be given? While risk assessment will guide care, there are principles that all hospitals who are going to take care of women with cardiac disease need to be able to implement. So we're going to talk a lot about these basic principles, these these basic guidelines that need to be addressed. And we'll also talk a little bit about different tools and tips that will help with caring for and and determining the plan of care for these patients. First, women with cardiac disease need to be cared for by an interprofessional team. The interprofessional team will take the information from the risk assessment and develop a plan of care that is specific for that patient. The interprofessional team needs to have experience with cardiac disease and pregnancy. My partner, Suzanne Baird, has had lots of experience with this. Suzanne, what other tips and um, strategies do you have you used in the past with the interprofessional development of plan of care?
1: Well, like you said, a lot of it is based upon their risk assessment or their specific lesion and how you plan care. So ideally, that's going to be, you know, especially for our high-risk patients are going to be in an interprofessional care conference prior to them coming into labor. And I want to emphasize that. So this is not something that you want to develop on Friday night uh, when she comes in at 2 a.m. or on a holiday weekend. And you don't have any kind of idea of how this plan is going to unfold for this patient who now is, you know, contracting every two to three minutes, you know, she's four centimeters dilated. So before she goes into labor, so this is a planned interprofessional care conference with all of the team members there. So then once you decide how that uh, plan is individualized for each that patient, then you want to put that in writing and put it in the EMR. Because again, when these patients come in, you want to have availability of that plan and know how to follow it. Again, uh, we'll talk about a lot of the concepts of uh, how these patients are managed and and that again is individualized and based upon their risk, but also the lesion. But some of the, the ideas that I might think about including in that plan would be a planned induction. So a lot of these patients are going to be brought in early. They're going to have a planned induction of labor when the most appropriate team members are going to be available or on site. And so that may even be talking about the right day of the week to bring them in. So if, for instance, they want to, that you they're going to be delivering early, the, an anticipated delivery, let's say at 34 weeks based upon this patient, then you're going to want to probably need to plan for some kind of cervical ripening uh, in this planned induction. Does she need hemodynamic monitoring? Those types of things that we'll talk about as we get into the individualized, but as specific as possible so that we can be prepared to take care of this patient at any time, because we don't know when these patients are going to come in. I need to know about these patients and how to take care of them.
0: I think that's a great point. I I can't tell you how many times um, as a clinical nurse specialist, we had a fantastic plan for a patient and she ends up coming in with ruptured membranes at 2 a.m. the morning before she was supposed to be admitted. So I think having that whole plan available for the team at any point in time is really important.
1: Right. I mean, you think about some of the medications that these patients might be on, I, I might not even know... Uh, how these medications are given normally, or we may not even have the availability of getting those to our unit, uh, depending on the hospital or the unit. So, you know, we just need to be as prepared as possible.
0: So I think one of the key things um, that we're going to think about with a general principle or general plan is very doing often um, frequent assessments of vital signs. So I know you have um, a particular uh, opinions about the vital signs, Suzanne. So what are your yeah, thoughts well, about about this?
1: You know, I, I ha- have that uh, saying vital signs are vital. And we have another podcast on that. But uh, so I'd point you in that direction to, you know, think about that. But they really are vital. You know, that came from a nursing student uh, that I had one time and it was just so profound. And I think about some of the assessments that we do on patients. We do so many assessments, um, but oftentimes we normalize the abnormal. And that's critical. When you think about a cardiac patient that you never normalize an abnormal vital sign. So vital signs in these patients are so critical and And we've also got to also think about getting out of the mindset of this is the way we do it on all the patients. So we only take vital signs every shift or a head to toe every shift or whatever it is that your traditional or your set up written policy protocol guideline in your hospital says, you've got to throw all that away because now you've got to individualize your assessment and the frequency of that assessment to that patient and the patient's risk factors. So it may be your vital signs are going to be more frequent, or your assessment of lump sounds or things like that are going to be more frequent. So uh, that's just so important to me to, to get that point across, to make sure that we individualize it, but the frequency and what we do in those assessments is so critical for these patients.
0: So one of the things that is one of those basic, basic vital signs is heart rate. So when I think of heart rate, um, particularly with the patient with cardiac disease, my number is 100 beats per minute, obviously assessed with my stethoscope, counting for a full minute, listening for um, any kind of irregularities I might hear, and definitely at a point that I would consider at rest, but not during contractions. So um, what, what else do you think about Suzanne when, when you're thinking about heart rate assessment?
1: Well, I think about how we do normalize that number. (laughs) You know, we may get a a rate of 110 and go, oh, that's just what she does or, um, and again, how important that might be in a cardiac patient. But uh, not just the number, but to make sure that you can hear those irregularities uh, or you may feel that in a pulse. Um, and then you want to make sure you investigate that and get your stethoscope out and listen to the heart rate uh, or listen for any irregularities, I- irregularities and also notify. So making sure that if you have anything that's abnormal, that you keep that interprofessional team, um, you know, engaged and and aware of what's going on, and also not just one number. We're, we're thinking about trends and vital signs with uh, this patient population, especially like a patient's heart rate. is not going to go from 70 to 100 to 130 or bounce around between those two. It's going to gradually climb, and that is why it's called an early warning sign of maternal compromise when you start getting over a hundred, that's abnormal. And then once you get over one ten, that's that's even more abnormal. And once you get up to one twenty, is even more abnormal. So, don't normalize or say, "Oh, she's in pain," or "She's excited," or "She's got uh, anxiety," or "She's having a contraction." Just recognizing not just a number, but where was she? What what trends in her heart rate has she been having over a period of time? And then what are some of the other associated Signs that you're going to want to look for. So even prior to calling the provider, I'm doing a full assessment to see what goes with that. Has she had any blood pressure changes? Has she? What is her respiratory rate? And, and counting the respiratory rate and documenting that. What is her pulse oximeter value? Uh, let me listen to her breath sounds. And I and I want to emphasize the proper way of listening to breath sounds. You know, posterior throughout all lung fields, not up here at the apex of her lungs and and just uh, anterior. You know, I call those breast sounds uh, when I talk about it, but see, I, I've seen that too much. You know, you want to listen appropriately. So um, thinking about uh, those two things and, and and first, I want to say one thing, just You know, a lot of these signs and symptoms we're talking about can overlap with the normal signs of pregnancy. So that's where we got to also think in our mind, is this, you know, abnormal, you know, because we can normalize a lot of this as we've talked about shortness of breath, fatigue, uh, tachycardia. Those are three things that come to mind really quick. So we all need to be aware of what findings might reflect underlying heart disease. Number one, and our second. Number two, you know, the assessment, as we talked about, the frequency and what's all involved is really going to be dependent on if she's antepartum, intrapartum, or postpartum. We'll go into more detail about that. And then third, when I'm focusing my assessment, especially in the um, postpartum period or in the intrapartum period, or back it up to the antepartum period. I'm thinking about the two most common complications of cardiac disease, and that's pulmonary edema and arrhythmia. And you're going to hear that theme throughout all of these podcasts: pulmonary edema and or an arrhythmia. So I'm going to focus my assessment on those two things, and I'm going to look for signs and symptoms of those and or fluid volume overload. So accurate measurement of vital signs, and I know Julie, you you talk about this a lot, and about how you um make sure that you are accurately measuring those and that's so, so key.
0: It is. It is it is so important. And you know for for a lot of our women that come in to, to deliver they are normal, nice, normal, healthy, and we get used to kind of estimating respiratory rate or not really paying that much attention because these women are normal. They have absolutely no risk factors. But I think where I see people having struggling is learning to, to think about, well, now this woman is very different. She has cardiac disease. So now I have to do things differently, as you said earlier. I need to listen with the stethoscope. I need to listen to the heart. I need to count the respiratory rate carefully for a full minute. I need pulse oximeter readings that are accurate, that are not the, the sensor is sitting on the arm that your blood pressure cuffs on. I mean, you, you need to have a higher index of reliability and accuracy. Um, so all of the vital signs should be, I think, taken into consideration with the other non-invasive hemodynamic assessments. And I know we we talk about things like central and peripheral pulses assessing those jugular venous distension. and then one that we've talked about often, Suzanne, intake and output.
1: I know. <laughs> sometimes I go to find that in the EMR and it's the hardest thing to find outside of the respiratory rate. So the respiratory rate is in abstentia and then now it's the INO, if I can figure it out. So um, that's so important on these cardiac patients to just, again, watching the trends, making sure that you're following it, make sure, making sure that, you know, how much has she had in the last 24 hours? And, and again, that can be very difficult depending on the EMR that you use. But it is critical in these cardiac patients that we look at INO. And, and and I just want to point out again, I love the quality of the peripheral pulses. That is a huge indicator in volume um, assessment. And which is, again, a a key point that we're going to make throughout this season of cardiac disease is intravascular volume status for these patients. So being able to palpate the pulse and to know where she was and where she's going or what that is over a period of time, it gives you so much of um, a a great assessment tool that's non-invasive of that intravascular volume, or if you're volume loading her. To see the change and feel the change in that and to know that you're uh, what you're doing with these patients.
0: As well, um, in a previous podcast or a different podcast, we had talked about the New York Heart Association functional classification um, system. And that's another key way of of looking at change and kind of detecting change so that you don't normalize findings. Um, the fetal fetal heart rate is another way to Uh, look at how the mother's doing, you know, obviously, she's not going to perfuse the fetus if she's not doing well herself. So looking for those early changes in the fetal monitor tracing is important too.
1: Right. And I'll just point us back to that ACOG practice bulletin on pregnancy and heart disease. It's a great tool. And in that bulletin, there is a green, yellow, red, uh, early warning signs of compromise tool that uh, this specific for um, cardiac disease. And certainly, you know that when I look at that chart, I think um, of those early warning signs, but also making sure that we get the appropriate team members to the bedside in a timely manner if you start to see any of the red uh, early warning signs which aren't so early by the time you get over there if you look at the chart. So I'm going to point you in that direction. An example of that might be your breath sounds. So um, again, proper assessment of breath sounds or shortness of breath. Um, If a patient is short of breath and has um, crackles, then that is going to be in a red zone where you need to get somebody to the bedside because they can drop their pulse oximetry values. They can start to become hypoxic and have some uh, extreme uh, complications from that. Uh, Stephanie, um, why don't we uh, turn that over to you now and talk about some of the interpartum general guidelines, because I know those can be quite scary for team members that um, don't care for these patients um, as frequently and what we need to do to get them into the, um, the uh, team members that, that need to be uh, managing these patients
2: thanks suzanne yeah i think labor and delivery for patients with cardiac disease is a pretty intimidating time i mean so many things are going on and these patients need you know higher levels of evaluation more frequent assessments and they're at higher risk of complications and deterioration around that peripartum period so it can be pretty intimidating but you know like julie pointed out at the beginning the good news is that the majority of these patients you're going to manage in a very similar manner and everything is going to be driven by that baseline risk assessment that should have already been performed. So all patients with cardiac disease, we're going to have some similar principles that I'm going to kind of go through, but if patients risk out into a much higher risk category, you know, let's say she has cardiomyopathy or Eisenminger syndrome or severe mitral stenosis, then there's going to be added things that you're going to have to take into consideration. So, you're going to be asking the same questions about labor and the birth process for all patients with cardiac disease, whether it's a repaired VSD or Marfan syndrome. And and they're, they're very straightforward. So starting with when should they be delivered? Now, the good news is the majority of these patients are going to be allowed to deliver at term. And if they've made it to that 39th week and have been undelivered, the majority of them are going to get induced at that period of time just as a a general rule. But there is a subcategory of these patients that are high enough risk that they're either going to labor spontaneously preterm, or they're going to need to be delivered preterm because of worsening cardiac function. So those questions need to be asked and addressed before the patient shows up in labor. Um, Can they have neuraxial anesthesia? That's a huge one patients really want to know this. I mean, and even if the patient says, I don't want an epidural in labor, what if she has to have a C-section? Can she have a spinal? Or is she going to go under general anesthesia? Are there, what are the risks of general anesthesia if this patient requires uh, a cesarean section and, and doesn't have time for noraxial anesthesia? So these are big, big questions. Again, the overwhelming majority of cardiac patients can have noraxial anesthesia while pregnant but there are some subcategories that are particularly high risk. So whereas the majority of patients with cardiac disease will actually benefit from the decreased systemic vascular resistance that occurs with with an epidural say um like take for example a patient with cardiomyopathy if you decrease her preload by giving her an epidural she has less volume that she has to pump she's gonna she's gonna do better that's gonna benefit her heart and if you decrease afterload by lowering her blood pressure with the epidural then her heart has to work less hard to get cardiac output circulated so it can actually be beneficial for that patient but some patients will not be able to tolerate that decrease in vascular resistance that comes with anoraxial anesthesia, and they may decompensate. The classic example of that is Eisenminger syndrome. So if that blood pressure drops or that vascular resistance decreases too much, then she'll stop perfusing her lungs, she'll become hypoxic, and she's at risk for sudden death. So You need to have a plan for pain pain management for these patients, particularly those that are the highest risk. But in general, most cardiac patients are going to be able to get an epidural or a spinal if that's uh, indicated. Other questions that we commonly ask, can she even have a vaginal birth? Well, again, the majority of cardiac patients um, they can have a vaginal birth and cesarean section does not benefit mom or baby for the overwhelming majority of cardiac patients. There are some exceptions to that. And some of the more common exceptions or at least in the world of cardiac disease or you know, patients with Marfan syndrome that have a dilated aorta, that's not a patient who's, who's a good candidate for a vaginal delivery or maybe somebody who is decompensating with cardiomyopathy and she's getting worse and you can't improve her cardiac function. But for the rest of these patients, even those with mitral stenosis and aortic stenosis, they're not going to be benefited by having major abdominal surgery. Major abdominal surgery is just that, major abdominal surgery. That's what a cesarean section is. And while it may be quicker, doesn't necessarily mean that it's better or lower risk for the patient. But if they're going to have a vaginal birth, we've got other questions that come up. Can they even push? Are there risks of Valsalva? For the overwhelming majority of patients, they can handle Valsalva just fine, but there are some that just won't be able to. And these questions, again, should be decided by this interprofessional pregnancy heart team that, that asks these questions and determines it individually for each patient. The ones who are not going to be recommended to push are those in the highest risk groups for decompensation, who are not going to be able to handle abrupt and frequent changes in cardiac output and intrathoracic pressure. So that's a minority of your patients, but they do exist. And if they aren't going to be able to push they might need to have an assisted second stage of labor where you give them a noraxial anesthesia, they're allowed to labor down until the point of crowning or a very low station, and then you assist them with vacuum or forceps. And so they don't, they don't need to exert all that effort and have all that those fluctuations in cardiac output. And all of this, again, should be decided in advance. And this is not something that's that should be decided um, at the bedside in the time of labor, unless that's when you first. Encounter the patient, and she's had no prenatal care, which is the minority, not the majority. For all of these patients, there are some general things that you have to take take into account. All patients with cardiac disease, frankly, all patients, period. But it's more particular for this patients. Need to have careful monitoring of any blood loss, and you need to know their eyes and nose very, very strictly because volume status is a huge issue. As Suzanne said, the two most common complications that we're dealing with in this population is uh, pulmonary edema and arrhythmias. And so if you don't know your patient's volume status, then you don't know whether or not her risk for pulmonary edema is increased or decreased. And you need to understand whether or not your patient needs to have excess volume or decreased volume in order to maximize her cardiac function. Um, and that's a little beyond the scope of today's podcast, but I think it's important for you to at least understand at a minimum, what is my patient's volume status? Is she, are her, is she positive or negative in her I's and O's? And then do I have any signs of fluid overload in this patient? Some other general points to keep in mind for this group, um, you know, you're going to really want to be diligent about making sure that they are not flat on their back. So they are either sitting up more, so that they're, you know, there's less compression of the vena cava by this gravid uterus, or she's, you know, in a lateral position while she's laboring. But really, you need to be maximizing venous return and cardiac output to, you know, to and from the heart by um, avoiding any compression of the abdominal vessels. Now. Um, Julie mentioned the the idea that the fetus is you know can be an early warning sign, and I just want to uh, um, expand on that a little bit. So I, I sometimes jokingly comment that your fetus is like your central line. It's like having a swan in because you're it's it's a very early indicator of some sort of decrease in uh, cardiac output or uh, perfusion to the uterus. And in the patient, in the case of a cardiac patient if her cardiac output is decreased for whatever reason, uh, then either because let's say that she has aortic stenosis or mitral stenosis, and she just can't pump enough blood past that obstruction, then the body has to start making decisions about what's important to perfuse. And from the body's perspective, the uterus is not important enough to perfuse. It's gonna be one of the first things where perfusion stops. Now, you guys may have heard of the term, the miner's canary or the canary in a coal mine. And that's a real thing, you know. Back in the day, and uh, where they didn't have sophisticated methods to identify toxic gases, they would literally have a canary in a cage in the coal mine. And as the toxic gases would build up in the mine, then the canary would die. And if they saw the canary die, then the miners knew that they needed to get the heck out because the gases were building up. So that. Miner's canary, like canary in a coal mine is an early warning sign that there's a problem developing and you need to, to change course. So the fetus is the canary in a coal mine in this situation. So if you see the fetus deteriorating, you need to be thinking, oh, this could be a sign that maybe mom is deteriorating and uh, we need to assess her cardiac function.
1: One thing I want to point out on that too is we have to also, again, recognize that it's a maternal compromise that's causing the fetal compromise, because one of the first things that we want to do is to run back and do a C-section. And now we have a mother who is compromised, leading to fetal compromise. We're going back to do major abdominal surgery on this patient. She will become further compromised as we uh, get back there. So we've got to correct the situation. So I just wanted to point that out.
2: That's a huge point. I mean, we see this over and over and over when we review cases, that the the fetus deteriorates, we know that mom is high risk, and our knee-jerk reaction is run back and do an emergency cesarean section, and there's no efforts made to try and improve mom's cardiac performance or stabilize her condition, and now we're going to do um, anesthesia, anesthesia and major abdominal surgery on a patient who's actually potentially clinically unstable, and the issue is not the fetus, the fetus is your marker that mom is unstable and we haven't recognized the instability, often because we normalize the abnormal vital signs. So if you understand what's going on, there's usually plenty of warning that something is happening, but it's been normalized to the point where the fetus is now saying this is no longer okay. For example, we've got a patient who has cardiomyopathy, and she's not uh, functioning very well. And so her cardiac output is decreased and we see her heart rate going up. We see her blood pressure going up as as she can't handle the volume that she's got on board. So it just builds up and builds up, which leads to increasing blood pressures. Her O2 sats are going down because she's developing cardiogenic pulmonary edema. So we've got hypertension, hypoxemia and tachycardia And we're normalizing it because the patient's in labor. And now, all of a sudden, she can't maintain cardiac output to the fetus, and so we start to see fetal compromise, fetal, whether it's recurrent late decelerations or bradycardia or whatever it is that we're seeing on the monitor, and oh my goodness, we must go rescue the fetus. And no one recognizes that there's an issue with mom. Well, in fact, mom's vital signs have been telling you for a while that there's a problem that needs to be dealt with, but we don't tend to react as early as we could, and we react to the fetus. So it's a classic situation. So some other general points uh, for cardiac patients, you know, um, oxytocin is acceptable to use in in cardiac patients. There's really no cardiac reason not to use oxytocin if this patient requires it. So the question really is, does she even need it? If she needs it, then you use it for the usual obstetric indications and contraindications. Now, antibiotic prophylaxis is actually not commonly utilized in cardiac patients anymore. You know, the American College of Cardiology cardiology recommends that we use antibiotic prophylaxis to prevent systemic bacterial endocarditis and really only a very small subset of super high risk patients you know maybe those that have a prosthetic uh, mechanical valve or have a history of endocarditis et cetera, or some complex surgically corrected congenital abnormality but for the majority of your patients they're not going to need antibiotic prophylaxis but again that's part of the plan that's identified before she shows up in labor and the last thing to to think about for the labor and intrapartum period uh, for these patients is anticoagulation so most of your patients are not going to be anticoagulated but some will like mechanical valves it's a pillar of their management and their risk occurs if you do not manage their anticoagulation appropriately so this is your opportunity to kind of plan out ahead of time when are we going to stop her anticoagulation? When are we going to resume it? What does that look like? And then um, also the other group of patients that needs anticoagulation are those that maybe have a cardiomyopathy or atrial fibrillation or a dilated ventricle or something along those lines. But um, most will not, but there are a subset where you're going to need to have a plan of care for management of anticoagulation. Um, And this is in addition to the VTE prophylaxis that we're going to be providing for, for these patients on a routine basis. So, I want to transition now to talk a little bit about what to expect in the postpartum period and and what we need to be watching for. You know, Suzanne and Julie, can you guys, like, give us your perspective on what the postpartum period looks like for a cardiac patient?
0: Well, I think the important thing to remember is that postpartum doesn't automatically flip some kind of switch and the patient goes back to normal. Um, some of the highest cardiac outputs that you'll see in pregnancy total are at the time of birth and in the immediate postpartum period. So the there is a need to follow women with cardiac disease very closely for the first 24 hours, at least. And that means most likely they're going to stay in labor and delivery or some area where they can be very closely and immediately followed and immediately observed At that point in time, looking for any complications or any signs and symptoms. And obviously, if you see any abnormal vital signs or see any complications, the woman may even stay longer than 24 hours in that um, intense environment. So the need to do very accurate, complete assessments does not go away postpartum. As a matter of fact, postpartum is one of the most high risk Times during this patient's hospital stay.
1: I know that's so tempting too. You've got that uh, induction that you've had to call off because you're waiting for a bed on the unit, and you have this postpartum cardiac patient there, but she's only six hours out postpartum, and and the temptation is to say, why don't we just send her over to mother baby and go ahead and uh, bring that induction in because we, you know. We need to get that, that done as well. And don't be tempted. That patient still needs to stay in labor delivery. And and I've been that charge nurse. So I, I know that temptation, but, but this is important. This is a really key piece that we want to emphasize that you want it, that, that increased acuity and, and, and mother baby nurses don't, don't have that ability that they have too many couplets to take care of to, to be able to just flip and do that uh, type of acuity in the, the needed assessments that they have.
0: Well, and, and I think another key aspect, um, besides continuing the, the very complete and clear assessments, are getting this patient ready to go home. Now, certainly, depending on the type of of cardiac lesion or disease she has, she may require a prolonged stay, maybe even um, several days in the hospital to be followed up. And in reality, there's going to be close follow-up of this patient even when she goes home, maybe even six months or longer. But the the discharge plan again, just putting all of this information into this family's um consciousness at the last minute is not gonna work because they have very clear criteria for re-engaging with healthcare if they see signs or symptoms. And I think that some of the things that that I think of when I think about a discharge plan, is that these women are going to going to need family help at home? Uh, I know sometimes it's possible to get um, a service with the, your insurance to help at home, but most people don't have that that ability. So having someone at home to help and and to allow this woman to go home and rest, she's not your typical birth. She's going to need time to recover and. Um, what other kind of warnings and guidelines do you talk about, Suzanne, with, with your patients?
1: Well, um, I think it's really clear that we need to be very specific. Again, that's based upon her risk, her lesion, her, her labor, her birth, you know, the signs and symptoms that she's having right now. But certainly, we want to be very clear in written instructions Uh, of warning signs of when she needs to come back in and be seen after discharge. So, um, for example, um, you know, you may think of this patient calling into an outpatient. I'll, I'll just switch it to an outpatient perspective. If you think about, you get a phone call from a patient that's in the postpartum period and she's got extreme fatigue, she's short of breath, her heart's racing, you know, we need to hear her and we need to bring her on in for an assessment. But that also, when you think about it in the intrapartum uh, or the postpartum intra, uh, inpatient status, those are the same things that we're looking for. We're looking for that extreme fatigue, short as a breath, heart racing. And then we wanna do our assessments and focus in on that. And then in the discharge plan, think about how we tie that into when she needs to come back in. The other thing I think about is birth control. And I'm going to come back to the complaints in a few minutes. But birth control, does she have um, any plans for uh, birth control? And what is it specifically? I'll just point out a lot of hospitals are doing immediate postpartum LARCs now. And that is a, a key piece in not just birth spacing, but for these patients, uh, they may not want to have any more children and are not going to have a permanent birth control or permanent uh, sterilization, but they want to do something like an immediate postpartum uh, lark, which is a great um, avenue for these patients. Um, then I think about also when, again, individualized for each patient, when are we instructing these patients to come back? So certainly if they have any of the um, early warning signs, but what are their other risk factors that they may have to go with that? So again, I'm going to point you back to the ACOG practice bulletin, they have specific risk assessments um, that we need to think about in conjunction with these patients as well um, and and to bring them back in early if they have any of these. And and that is a great resource to look at. Um, And if she has those risk factors, bring those patients in, hear her, listen to those those complaints and, and those risk
2: factors. Suzanne, give us an idea of, uh, give us an example of a patient with some of those risk factors that you might, you know, recommend that you have a lower threshold to bring them in.
1: Okay. So I think about the, the mom that is, uh, she's 35. She is a non-Hispanic black race. She's obese. She has diabetes. Uh, She's a smoker. She has hypertension. Okay, so all of the above, some of the above, you know, but those, that's a common patient that, that we have in our practices. And uh, those patients, she, she calls you and says, I'm so extremely deep. I've got shortness of breath. That would be a red flag for me. When I think
2: in this group of patients in particular, this is not the group of patients that comes back for a six-week checkup they come back for a one to two week checkup in addition to their six week checkup. And then any of the other, if they call with or have issues with symptoms or signs that are creating concern, they need to be evaluated immediately. But even if they are asymptomatic when they leave the hospital, they need to be seen within a week or two. And, and you're gonna individualize it based on their own specific situation. But I just wanted to make the point, these are not the patients that are like, see in six weeks, have a nice
1: you know postpartum period, Exactly. And that's really, that's really clear. clear. And, and we need to make that clear to them and, and make sure they have the resources to get back to their appointment. That's, you know, we know follow-up postpartum is not um, a high percentage, but in these patients, it's essential. And we need to make sure that they have the resources to get to that appointment and to make sure that they make that. Um, Julie, you brought up another good point that That I think that we should end with, and that's the family member, you know, being there and understanding this plan too, not just for support, but understanding what these signs are too.
0: Yeah, I think I don't like to talk to um, women about discharge planning unless there's someone there that's going to be with them that can hear this information. First, it's always helpful, in addition to having something written, if two people have heard it, or at least you know, more than just the patient has heard it. And I think we're all so much more aware now of the risks that can occur postpartum. And these women are home and they need to understand when to come in. I know that was a big eye opener for me with the CMQCC um, the last Maternal mortality rates that they listed, we're still not doing well postpartum. So these women need to to be listened to, and they need to have clear instruction about when to seek healthcare, and and to be insistent if they're not getting the answers that they need. Um, that um, they pursue this because this is a problem.
1: Yeah, there's some great resources. Um, that I'll point you to to also the CDC website, they have a new campaign called Hear Her. And it's really got some great information there outlined by the CDC on specific recommendations of when to seek care. And then in addition, the A1 post-birth warning signs are available at www.a1.org. I
2: want to thank everybody for tuning in and listening to our podcast. You can learn more about our company at www.clinicalconceptsnob.com. You can also follow us on our Facebook page, Clinical Concepts in Obstetrics. And we ask you to email or direct message us ideas for future podcast topics. You can find a list of references on today's topic on our website or on the read app, qxmd.com app.
0: This podcast and music was produced by Austin Baird. Are you looking to create a podcast? Please reach out to Nashville
2: Podcast at gmail.com. Once again, that is Nashville
1: Podcast at gmail.com.